human beings crave beautiful places. They crave, you know, having experiences that build community. They want that. And so when you deny us that, it's like, well, we will seek it out in other ways. I mean, that's why we see that happening in our communities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, a bit of a departure from our normal fare, is a conversation with Majora Carter, developer, urban revitalization strategist, one of the original TED Talkers, MacArthur Fellow, cafe owner, and author of the recent book, Reclaiming Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better place. We get to talk about all this and more in our conversation, which took place on May 7th, 2022. The thesis of Majora's book in much of this conversation is that communities, like companies, must have a talent retention strategy, particularly what she calls low-status communities, exemplified by her community, the Bronx. The subtitle of her book makes the point directly. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better place. The book, in our discussion, focuses on how community builders and civic leaders can improve their neighborhoods to be welcoming places for people to stay rather than leave, and for communities on the verge of development to embrace their own to balance out gentrification and not lose their best and brightest and role models for the next generation. Interestingly, I heard a recent Ezra Klein podcast with a conservative thinker, Patrick Deneen, who comes from a very different perspective than Majora, talk about exactly the same thing, but from different worlds. Essentially, white brain drain from low-status communities in the South and Midwest. I invite you to check out that podcast and connect the dots on these two conversations. As a society, we're all too familiar with this problem in both the urban and rural low-status communities. We all pay the price with huge negative ripple effects and need strategies, which is a real estate challenge, to turn these back into communities of success and diversity. Majora will be speaking at the upcoming ULI San Francisco Housing the Bay Summit, which I'll also be attending and where I will be interviewing this time on stage our prior Leading Voices guest, Cedric Bobo of Project Destined. We live in incredibly complicated times where we're demanded to address in business and in society, ongoing constant change and disruption. The real estate industry is right in the middle of those demands, which we will keep exploring in conversations like this one with Majora, conversations we've had around carbon and sustainability, conversations around housing affordability, conversations around adaptation in the office business to new realities, and continued exploration on creating great nurturing urban environments. I hope that these discussions on leading voices enables you to enter thoughtfully into some of these more wide-ranging topics relevant to the real estate industry. Exploration is what we recruiters get to do as we help find best-in-class talent for our clients. We look broadly across the industry for great talent, and then it's easy to jump into an interview just with the goal of determining if a candidate's worthy to present to our client or not. But those goals alone are too simple for our deeper task which since we're in conversation with a candidate is also to honor them enough to try to understand who they are, where they're going, indeed whether or not they're the right fit for the job, and to establish what might be a long-term dialogue. As I like to say, so many things are about the broader view, not just the immediate task at hand, themes you'll hear throughout our podcast series. Hence, as always, thank you to Terra Search, now Terra ZRG, for supporting the podcast and enabling these conversations. As always, if you're enjoying Leading Voices and not yet following or subscribing to the show, please do follow us on your favorite podcast app. If you find meaning or learn something special in this or any of the other episodes from our catalog, please share them with friends and colleagues. Indeed, in our e-blasts and in our show notes, I always refer to several similar episodes from the archive that might resonate with the current discussion. And if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, please email me at my new ZRG email, which is mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Majora. Majora Carter, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm thrilled to have you here. We're in Oakland today, and you're speaking at a book festival, and uh, we're going to be together at the Urban Land Institute, San Francisco, housing the Bay in a couple few weeks. Yep. So uh, it's a preview of that conversation. Yes. You have a new book out and you are an urbanist 
I think. You so can call just, me that, sure. Okay, <laughs> elevator speech. Who are you? Why are we talking? Sure. So my name is Majora Carter, and I am an urban revitalization strategist and real estate developer. And I did write this book called Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one because it is exactly what I believe. It is about a talent retention approach to community development that, you know, we did. We took a page out of a company, you know, talent retention manual, basically, which Uh is, you know, understanding that when you hire people for a company, And, you know, you pour resources into them, you know, so that they feel like they're connected to the goals of the, of the companies that they want to stay and pour themselves into it. Mm -hmm. We don't do that in terms of low status communities. And I define low status communities in my book. I actually put the glossary up front, the words that I use that I want people to know about. Low status is one of them that I Uh use throughout. And, uh, it really is about because, and I don't use the terms poor or underprivileged or, you know, even under-resourced um, to describe, you know, neighborhoods that are poor or underprivileged or anything right. like that, because I feel that status actually implies something much deeper and, and something almost immutable. And in the case of low-status communities, what it really implies is that inequality in those neighborhoods is assumed both inside by the people living there or people from the outside looking in like governments or philanthropy and or industries. And with that in mind, you know, our approach really has been about how do you create the kind of infrastructure in those communities that helps support the people that are already born and raised there to kind of look back at their neighborhoods and realize that they don't have to measure success by how far they get away from them, mm-hmm. but they can use their talents and and actually user talents to sort of like provide a great example and invest emotionally and socially and just even spiritually, you know, into their own community so that the community itself is the the first recipients of the benefit of the talent that's in their born and raised in their communities. Uh-huh. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a headhunter. So mm-hmm. therefore retention of talent actually is against my best, best interest, but we'll pretend that's not <laughs> the case. Yes. But for companies, of course, retaining talent's a huge deal. Yeah. And it would be the case in a neighborhood. Right. I'm an entrepreneur myself. And like the last thing I want to do is like when we do hire people is train them up so, so the competition can take them away. Right. Now, when we talk about these low status communities, if we talk about are they low status communities that get better in terms of services or they're also does the thinking apply to low status communities in transition with some level of I'm going to use the word gentrification mm-hmm. Both can occur. That is a great question. And and you sort of detailed the answer actually mm-hmm. a little bit. Because in low status communities, there really are only two kinds of develop, real estate development that happens in them. One is sort of like the sort of typical model, the gentrification and displacement where they're, you know, the community is being developed by, you know, by outside interests who mm-hmm. are basically creating it for somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Not for the people that live there, even though it's often considered to get better. And it's not like the people in the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods don't want the same thing, but it's clearly not designed for them. The other kind is something that we call poverty level economic maintenance. And it's where you see it, you know, specifically, I think, in terms of the billions of dollars of both philanthropic government and even business dollars that go into these communities, and yet they may remain economically stagnant. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll see it in the type of, like the architecture of some of these these types of projects, you know, whether it's, you know, like for example, the, the pharmaceutical and healthcare, you know, industry, we got plenty of health clinics and pharmacies, you know, mm-hmm. in low status communities, represents a multi-billion dollar economic engine for this country. So a lot of that comes directly from low status communities and the lifestyle conditions that are being quote unquote treated in mm-hmm. those places, diabetes, obesity, heart conditions, and et cetera. Those are the type of things that we see happening there. Again, those rates aren't going down mm-hmm. at all. So we're going to talk through the conversation of these kinds of communities in two places. I want, mm-hmm. By the end, we'll come up with the answer that works between them because one is a perpetually low status community. Mm-hmm. The other is a gentrifying community. Right. Something in between works. Right. And that's what we think is their talent retention community development strategy, uh-huh. you know, which really is about kind of nudging the people that are in those communities who are sort of conditioned to think from the when they were little. Because I know for a fact, I mean, I, as a kid, you know, I was reading at three and you just, you know, and I had a big brain and I was just like from a very early age taught right. like you're going to grow up and be somebody. 
And I was conditioned to believe that, you know, it meant leaving the neighborhood, uh-huh. period. You know, and it didn't help that my neighborhood was literally burning around, burning around me, you know, because of the financial disinvestment, you know, landlords were torching their own buildings. I mean, it was the era of the, the quote unquote burning Bronx. And you grew up in the Bronx I grew up in what decades? Then so- the 70s. Yes. So this was the headline of what Americans think of as poverty yes. even today. Yes. We that were, is the model. The, like, we were the poster child for urban blight, literally. And and yeah, many people still think of it today, like regardless of how many you know presentations that I gave. It's like, yeah, this is what I grew up with. This is where we are now. It's still like, I think people still believe that that is, that is the case. And it's interesting. I want to use the word, how did you escape that? Right? Of Which, course you do. Of course see, I do. Right. See how it's so <laughs> it, it seductive. It just boomed into my head. Of course it does. But that's the narrative, right? That's right. the whole idea of this, like, this romanticism right. of you grow up and you get out of these places as opposed to actually looking back and looking inward and going, how can we like use all of our talent and recognize that we are the, the keys to our own economic recovery, but first we've got to apply those beautiful gifts right where we are. And it's interesting because in low status communities, you know, it's not just I'm from an inner city, but, and it's mostly black and Latino people there, but you also find them in uh, Native American reservations. You'll certainly mm-hmm. find them in all white communities that have made rust belt towns that might've had lots of industry, but don't anymore. So those are the type of places where you'll still see, you know, the, 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 the manifestation of what it means to be a low status community. It's the places where you know, you'll see more dollar stores as your, like your main retail opportunity. You won't have diverse options for food, but you'll, you know, you so, or you won't see farmer's markets and, you know, good grocery stores, but you'll certainly see like maybe a convenience store or even a dollar store where you get most of the food that you right. have, you know, and you'll see, I think, but, but really the thing that you see most of is things like very highly subsidized or federally subsidized affordable housing, mm-hmm. which gets concentrated in those communities. Developers, it's, it's part of the poverty level economic maintenance because developers get paid plenty of money to build that. Mm-hmm. But those communities stay in this sort of like, you know, chronic economic stagnation. And it's mostly because all of these, those kind, those kind of um, developments mm-hmm. concentrate poverty. And we know when we concentrate poverty, we concentrate all of the social issues associated with it. Okay. Statistically. We're going to unpack that in a few minutes. It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was in rural North Carolina. And I had not experienced in my life the number of dollar stores before. You mentioned it, right? And this is not a dense community. There's very little subsidized anything. Mm -hmm. But there's gas stations, Mm -hmm. churches, dollar stores. There weren't even convenience stores. Wow. There was fast food, of course. Yes, of course. Same thing. Of course. I know. This is what I'm saying. Doesn't matter where you are. You know the low status community when you see it. So come back to something you said before, which, and you said this the first five five minutes, and I meant to scream it out, but you said inequality is assumed. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you where you grew up? And I'm wondering what it might mean in Appalachia where these people are. Oh, I think anybody growing up in a low status community, I don't care what color they are, they know that if they're going to try to develop their own sense of self, they can't do it there. Like it is a shame. It is a, some, a stigma that's attached to you. Right. And it's really, it's very strange because it's super problematic because there's a, a part, you know, where you want your community to do well. And I, cause I see it all the time, you know, when I, when I work around the country, but you know, but there's also this, this pull away from it because you don't want to be associated with it either. Right. And, you know, and you've been led to believe like, okay, I'm going to grow up and be cool and be, be smart and, you know, succeed, which means success doesn't live here. Success doesn't live here. And talk a little bit more about growing up and the punchline to your growing up, wrong way to put it, but is that you went to Wesleyan. So, which just symbolizes the opposite effect. So just talk a little bit about growing up there during that time in that place, the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And then getting to Wesley and and how you got there and what culture shock was, but I'm more interested in growing up. Sorry, yeah. it's a long lead. In it. No problem. Yeah, so I grew up, I was born in 66, so I, my formative years were in the uh, early 70s yeah. and 80s. And I guess around the time I was about, starting around six, six years old-ish, that's when I started noticing the fires. Mm-hmm. Like literally watching the news with my dad and realizing that there were, my neighborhood was burning. Mm-hmm. 
and didn't understand why, you know, but we understood later that it was because of all the years of redlining and financial, you know, disinvestment, you know, mm-hmm. from the banking and finance industries. You know, there was no investment happening in those communities and landlords in particular were literally torching their own buildings. And, you know, this and also the buildings at that point were like, since they were, they were so in disrepair. Right. Yeah, it was easy for them to burn. Didn't, couldn't yeah. do anything else. Yeah, it was bad. So, and then, you know, I'm watching that. And then I remember the summer I turned, or the, the, the fall I turned seven that summer. My, the, the beginning of the summer, both buildings at either end of my block burned down. And at the end of the summer, my brother was killed in the, the drug wars that happened in the neighborhoods. And I just remember thinking, that's when I really started to plan my escape. And yeah. I was all of seven. You know, and again, I was a smart kid. So I was reading at three and yeah, it was, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. And literally pretty much every day of my life after that was, was trying to prepare me to get out. And it was, it all culminated, you know, with me, you know, going to the, the Bronx High School of Science and then later on to, uh, to Wesleyan University. And they, I, I had culture shock associated with both of them. Uh-huh. I mean, it was, they were both predominantly white institutions. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Just, I'm thinking a couple things. So we used the word escape before, but also thinking at the same time you're planning to escape, you have to dodge at the same time because there's so many things that could take you off track or could kill you. Your brother was killed. So how did you keep the smile, that the intelligence that you have and the smile that I see you have? I mean, what's so interesting is that, you know, look, I knew that my neighborhood was not the safest place but at the same time, I never felt like it was dangerous to me personally or to most of the folks that I knew. I knew if you wanted trouble, it would find you and because you were going that way. But, you know, we were still a community. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing that most people don't ever really want to acknowledge about communities like low status mm-hmm. communities is that there is always a sense of safety and security for, 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 for most people. We feel that. And people do look out for each other. And, and, and I think that's why I never felt unsafe, ever. And, um, and, and is that because they're, I'm thinking of the images I have to get to those places, mm-hmm. which are not very many. And most are negative, but they're not all. There's romantic. They're all kinds of different images as we talked about this. One's the wire. So I'm like a wire fanatic, which is... <laughs> I don't know. I've actually never seen it. I know. It's a Shakespearean way of looking at this no, from I've, a social, you know, the whole story. I, so. I know the story. I just, I, I probably t- should watch it. But Okay. Yeah. So that said, at that time in your neighborhood, there is the highly functional community alongside the dysfunctional community. Yep. And those people are living their lives and providing role models yep. so that you never felt unsafe. Yes, absolutely. Totally. You know, I talk about, you know, some of them in my book. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them was the daughter of one of my mom's friends who was getting, you know, a, you know, some advanced degree and knew that I was interested in writing. And so she literally would critique my writing. I had a weekly appointment with her and uh-huh. mommy would walk me around the corner and she'd, you know, gossip with Miss Flanagan and I would talk to her daughter, Gail. And, you know, and I would like give her my little wire bound, you know, um, notebook and with the stories that I'd written. And I was like, you know, all of seven or eight, right. something like that. And that was just as normal, you know, as hearing about people, you know, who had OD'd. Alongside each other. Mm-hmm. It's an end, not an or. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about your book. And actually, you said before that you put definitions up front. Yeah. And I learned more. The whole book was in the definitions <laughs> for me. So I like each of the definitions, my jaw was dropping in three pages. And then the book <laughs> explained how you got there. So I'm going to call out the words, and then we could discuss some of them. But it's interesting you have a fan club, and you say you're haters. And if no one's hating you, you're probably not being disruptive. Talk yes. about that. Yeah. I mean, look, if you know, no one's ever done something major where people haven't looked at it and been like, that's just crazy, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's the same way, especially if you're working you know, in a space where it's just so normalized to do things the same way. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to answer, go forward on some of these questions of the nonprofit industrial complex. Is That's the next phrase. one. Okay, non- talk, talk about that. You know, so I looked at the fact that the billions of dollars that get spent, you know, philanthropically and by association, you know, government along the same path, that 
spent, you know, to address social issues, you know, in low status communities, but they all stay the same. You know, mm-hmm. they're not getting any better. And we, we've seen that, that philanthropic spending does not add up to, you know, real change. It just doesn't. Because if it did, then we would have seen a bigger dent, but we don't. But I've noticed that, you know, philanthropies still do really well. There's plenty of money being, you know, put into organizations. But again, if the bottom line is, how much better are these, 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 um, these problems getting? Mm-hmm. No, not getting any better. Then why do we keep doing it the same way? So, and so let's, let's obviously drill down on that. And one of the things we're going to talk about is subsidized housing. Mm-hmm. And I'm an advocate of subsidized housing. Subsidies are good things. But if they're maybe in the wrong place. So let's talk about the concentration of the use of subsidized housing. And then the last preface to this is I think of generations of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. What was done in the last generation? What was the belief system that put the money in, that used philanthropic dollars all meant in a good way? Mm-hmm. And government dollars meant in a good way, but we might have made some mistakes, mm-hmm. which we've done plenty of. And then how do we do it in the future wisely? <laughs> or the people in the country say, shit, I'm not going to start giving money to a philanthropy. I'm not giving money to the government because they misuse it. Right, Okay. Right. Talk right. about those things. So if you look at some of the, the roots of subsidi- of, of federal subsidies, mm-hmm. like many of them, I think some of them absolutely address the fact that in areas of concentrated poverty, you did need to deconcentrate that poverty. As a matter of fact, those subsidies were actually meant to be used, not in those areas, mm-hmm. but in what they called high opportunity areas, where the right. schools were better, where there was less environmental burdens, blah, 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 you know, better opportunities for housing. But instead... They built them because, you know, in those high opportunity areas, unfortunately, there was just like people who were like, we don't want those poor people. No way. Not going to build it there. Yep. Not going to do it. So then where did they put them? Concentrated them in places where there was already high rates of poverty. And if we, and just statistically, if we look at the concentration of poverty, what does it do? It'll either generally attracts like other industries that, that are designed to be supported by that poverty or benefit from it. Maybe they're not designed to be supported by it, but that's what happens, i.e. subsidized health clinics, who are they working to support poor people in those communities? Mm-hmm. Pharmaceutical industries, again, a good portion of, of their balance sheet you know, comes from the lifestyle-related illnesses. I mean, diabetes is huge business mm-hmm. in this country. So those type of things, when you add them all together, you are, in essence, exacerbating low educational attainment lower health outcomes. You know, even there's, there's studies that, that show when you add all these things together, it actually adds to the precedent of bad policing in those communities. It's just, mm-hmm. it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And I, these, are, these are stats that I didn't make up. There's like a center, you know, at Yale University that looks at the, the roots of bad policing. And a lot of it has to do with how eco, the economics of a community work. And so if we don't acknowledge that, and then we keep using our federal dollars mm-hmm. to support the concentration of poverty and everything associated with it, which, of course, we still pay for mm-hmm. as taxpayers. We should like, question that. But mm-hmm. instead, we don't. So how do you take the Bronx, mm-hmm. which is historically a low-status community, mm-hmm. maybe gentrifying, we'll, we'll think about that in a mm-hmm. few minutes, but how do you... Can subsidized housing stabilize those communities done right? So what's done right and what's not done right there? Because we could go elsewhere too. Right. I mean, I feel like there's not enough. Like, for example, one of the things I actually mentioned in the book is that our local councilman famously said that he would veto any project that was up for city funding that wasn't 100% affordable for the lowest income bands in the community, in, in the borough which for us is just, it's very, very low. And which means that the only kind of projects that are going to get built there are going to be incredibly, you know, low income projects or homeless shelters. And because of that, we see the same type of concentration, mm-hmm. period. And so the diff, what I think we need to be thinking about is how do you create more economic diversity in those communities? And I think, frankly, some of the easiest, you know, hanging fruit, you know, is if you just look at, quite frankly, the home ownership rate that has dropped over the past 20 Mm -hmm. years, which is um, 
mostly because families will sell to predatory speculators because they often are not aware, you know, of the value of their homes. And, you know, if we looked at low-income homeowners in low-status communities, you know, almost like as a way to, as basically the people that are actually supporting affordable housing in their own community Mm -hmm. and protected them from Mm -hmm. the very seductive ways that predatory speculators work, keeping them in their home would actually help alleviate a lot of the burden that I think we're, we're seeing on a housing front because people who are, you know, owner occupied in their own communities and, and especially if they've got attendant units that they can rent out are generally they're, they're doing affordable housing, but we're not even talking about that. Almost nobody does. Right. So lots of things to unpack and talk about in that conversation, home ownership rates within those communities, mm-hmm. increasing and stabilizing those home ownership rates. Mm-hmm. If someone drops in a tax credit property in a low status community, in and of itself is not bad unless everything else there is another low exactly. income housing tax credit right, property. Which is basically what happens. Yeah. And and does the low income housing project or a workforce housing project using more lingo having mixed income, does that have a demonstrably better outcome for the health of the community? Well, it having more economic diversity always has a better, you know, outcome, especially if there's, I think, especially if you're creating opportunities for people that are already there, you know, many of them can't even live in neighborhoods that they want to live in. Right. Like when we did um, market surveys in my neighborhood, when we first started thinking about being a developer, we asked people, so why are you moving out? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you are, and a lot of them were just like, you know, I, I got a good job and you know what, I'd like to stay, but quite frankly, there's nobody's building housing mm-hmm. for me. And I was like, we're not wealthy, but we're not destitute. And it's just like, why are, like workforce housing? I think it's something we absolutely need more of, and nobody's really building it that. It does not pencil. Yeah, it does, does, it not, does pencil. not pencil. And it's just like... <laughs> Well, and I, I'm not even sure if that's an entirely 100% true because I do think you can like sort of stagger, you know, different various capital stack and, and add in market uh-huh. rate, which will pay for itself as long as you build in the right type of of um, economic developments that could be used to, to attract them, keep uh-huh. them there. And then you sort of like layer the rest of it in terms of the different types of subsidies that you can get for various, yep. um, you know, income levels. And I just think people just aren't, trying to be creative because quite frankly I think the affordable housing you know market is so deeply entrenched and if you're going to do it you know do it and um you know, and make some money not to say that it's easy I know it's not but I think it's really interesting that that's the story that we keep telling ourselves it doesn't pencil new although it's beginning to so people are really working it it does pencil for preservation though except the world of advocates don't care about preserving for workforce as much as they care about preserving for low-income people. And it's really the workforce that stabilizes the neighborhood and should be preserved. But there's no economic model for... There's a few of them, and there's one in California that you'll hear about in Housing the Bay. Oh, cool. But it's happening. But but it's not deep, and there's not enough of it because it's either preservation of workforce or gentrifying value-add housing. Those are the economic models. Well, see, I th- do believe that that is the effectiveness of the nonprofit industrial complex at play. It's not only the nonprofit industrial complex because the users of the low-income housing tax credit uh, nonprofits are a, a quarter of those folks. So I think the there's the the advocate side on one end that's just like we only need to be concerned about the poorest of poor people, and anything else is not particularly authentic. That missing middle is not considered that important. Let me keep keep pushing on the string here because it's really interesting. So I worked at the Resolution Trust Corporation during the RTC days in the affordable housing program. And the biggest debate among me and my colleagues was if the stuff's going to be for free, get it to the lowest income people possible. That was not me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, don't overburden low-income people, particularly for home ownership, because mm-hmm. they, they were going to fail. And then you could all laugh at them for having failed. And they could say, and then and even worse than that, just say, look, we tried, so we shouldn't do it again. Exactly. And then the other thing is a t- highly targeted low-income community of 100 units, if not, if in a community that has diversity in it, is not in and of itself a bad thing. Because you're describing if it's building after building after building... Mm-hmm. 
out of context. Right. But in context, onesie, it's okay. Yeah. And, you know, and just having, and, and the example, you know, of that one building is something that, you know, people can kind of like wrap their minds around as right. well. And I think that's the importance of having, you know, this, this talent retention approach that I talk about, because it's like, these are people in your neighborhood who are building businesses, you know, who are refinancing their homes, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not selling it to a predatory speculator, um, you know, who are thinking about like set, getting their credit, you know, good enough so that they could at some point purchase their own home down the line. But don't those people then want to go to a quote unquote better neighborhood with better school and better opportunities and a better coffee shop well, and a nicer grocery you store? You will not find a better coffee shop than the one I built in <laughs> well, my Well, we're going to get to your coffee shop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we just won Best in New York by uh, Time Out uh, New York. So, But to, to your point, it's those type of things that we know people are leaving the community to experience. It's, we call it lifestyle infrastructure. And it's because when we ask people, so why? Why are you leaving the neighborhood and or, you know, what are your hopes and dreams and ask, you know, just sort of aspirations for your own kind of future. And they would name things like cafes, mm-hmm. you know, bars, restaurants, you know, um, you know, cool cafes and, and just p- bookstores, places that they wanted to see, be seen in and right. see other cool people in. Literally, that's what it was. And so we were like, how about we try building some of that in our own community and see what happens? Mm-hmm. And then we realized that it did become this kind of magnet for folks that you, that like I was, even though I knew there was like cool people in my neighborhood, I don't think I understood how many there were. I truly didn't because we didn't have like literally walls, you know, to come and gather in Uh that just, we didn't have, there was no place like that. Okay. I want to, we're going to come back to home ownership and gentrification a few minutes, but I'm going to talk about your coffee shop and cool people. Mm -hmm. So talk about how you developed the coffee shop, why it's so wonderful and what's a cool person versus a non-cool person who might be sitting in a healthcare waiting room in your neighborhood? I mean, health clinics, are, I mean, they're fine when you want to be in there, but that, or when you need to be there. But if that's like the biggest part of real estate, public real estate right. in your neighborhood, you're not going to go and party there, right? No. No. So that's my point. So we started the coffee shop again. It was to test that model. What's it called? Out. It's called, well, it started out as we was a joint venture with, with a company called Birch Coffee and they uh-huh. did roast, they had a great roast house and just really exquisite specialty coffee shops um, downtown. They had like a dozen or so. And so we were their Bronx outposts. So we learned everything about specialty coffee, but then we realized that we needed to kind of like, you know, decouple. And then we ended up, you know, starting, you know, adding our, our own spin on the experience and we mm-hmm. called us we, re, we renamed ourselves the boogie down grind uh-huh. boogie down's a name for the for the bronx um you know we're the birthplace of hip-hop and and it was a way for us to sort of like showcase that part of our culture you know which we totally embrace and love and and we just like put it on the walls you know in terms of like the seminal hip-hop you know albums you know early hip-hop uh-huh. albums um you know we did something called we called urban archaeology you know we found old signs of the you know of, that were literally on walls at the time I love that. when um when hip-hop was being birthed and you know just put them all up and you know our baristas are all djs in their own right and they just you know play um they just make their own playlist it's really cute but that's the kind of stuff they do and we just really and you know open the, the space up for you know, whether it was, um, you know, art exhibits and open mics and spoken word nights and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Um, fashion shows, credit repair workshops. I mean, we just created the space community for, space. for people to fill with the, what the kind of programming that they wanted to see. Yeah. And does this not otherwise exist in your neighborhood in the Bronx in different forms of different kinds of restaurants or meeting places? My or- neighborhood, this was the first, you know, cafe that we've had in the neighborhood since I was uh, in high school in the 80s. Did this spawn other development nearby? So is that creating a, a corner and a space and a streetscape that becomes infectious? That It was. That was the whole point. Um, but which, which it hasn't gone into that levels just yet. I can't wait till we become more of a district where there's more than just uh, you know our one cafe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am building an event hall down the street, but yeah, I definitely want to see, you know, much more of that type of 
you know, public lifestyle infrastructure, you know, happening in terms of commercial spaces. You know, we don't want to be the only one, obviously. Yeah, of course. And you say in your book, I'm going to quote you in your book, it's never lost on me that a coffee shop operating in an American low-income neighborhood is considered synonymous with gentrification. It symbolizes that the neighborhood is changing, but not for the benefit of the residents already there. Mm -hmm. So... Is this for the residents already there? Yes, it is a 100% locally owned cafe, period. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that, that when you see it, it's most of the people that you'll find there, um, you know, are people from our neighborhoods. And uh, that was the whole point. You know, right. it's like we want nice things, too. Of course. Uh, yeah. But no, it was not, not necessarily. Not necessarily, of course, because there are some folks who will preach up and down that, all we really need is is affordable housing. And that's pretty much it. And I'm like, human beings crave beautiful places. They crave, you know, having experiences that build community. They want that. And so when you deny us that, it's like, we will seek it out in other ways. I mean, that's why we see that happening in our communities. You know, we play to the almost as if poverty is a cultural attribute in our Mm -hmm. community. And when you act like that, then well, you don't need a nice place to hang out. You just need a health clinic. Right. And I'm like, you wouldn't want that for your kids. I mean, I mean, why would we want it for ours? And then you see it. That's one of the reasons why people, why there is an exodus, you know, in our communities, because people will leave if, if to, as soon as they're able to find places that actually speak, you know, to their spirit as a human being. And there is no capital, no money, no self-generated money within that neighborhood to create other places like your coffee shop. I had to, we used the, our community as a R&D lab because no, there wasn't anybody trying to come and build a, a cafe there. No. It, it's interesting. I just watched the Magic Johnson documentary. Did mm-hmm. you see this on Apple TV? It was, it was really good. Mm. And they, there were two parts that got to real estate in the last episode after the component about AIDS. Mm. Magic Johnson Enterprises was building theaters, neighborhood mm-hmm. theaters. And then they had a joint venture with Starbucks and right. they built Starbucks. Yeah. Did that happen in your neighborhood at all? And if it did, did it persist or not persist? No. I actually tried to get Starbucks to come. They wouldn't even return a call. <laughs> um, because to them, and I actually met, you know, I explained in the book that I'd met like the head of New York City real estate at one point right. and told him all about, you know, my neighborhood, da, da, da. and he was just like point blank, oh, it's just too emerging a market. And then I found out from the same person after we had opened up the Boogie Down Grind uh-huh. that, and, and we were doing okay, he was just like, oh yeah, now we're looking at that neighborhood. Yeah, so it's like ready. we set we literally set the table for them to want to come. Right. It, it's interesting. I haven't been to the Boogie Down Grind Cafe. I will come. You should. But in any neighborhood I go to, it's the parallel to the Boogie Down Grind Cafe where I find myself walking into versus the Starbucks because it gives me a feeling of mm-hmm. specialness and neatness and it's of its place. Right. And Starbucks, which is just fine, is not of its place. It's just everywhere. Nope. And if it was there, it would still give people a place to sit, talk, and hang out. Yeah, so that's a good thing. Totally. But yeah. it's the local places that have that power to them if, if, they're, if they're done right. Now, I want to talk about other developments that you've done. You've done a waterfront park. So kind of t- tell the story of both of those. Yeah. Well, I spearheaded the development of the first waterfront park my neighborhood had in more than 60 or 70 years, I can't remember, but it was a long time, many, many decades. And, um, you know, and that really, it also came out of this notion that our community deserved better. Like Mm -hmm. we were fighting against this, the, the siting of a huge waste facility on our waterfront. You know, I thought that it might make sense as part of our advocacy to give our community something to fight for rather than just against and and it was the redevelopment of a you know of a, a map city street that had been used as a dump for decades that dead ended at the Bronx River because we'd heard about this uh, grant program that the U.S. Forest Service was putting out to protect um, American threatened urban rivers of uh-huh. which the Bronx River was certainly one of them. It was like lined with industry and all sorts of stuff like that, and um, and through that process and it was just like I didn't even realize we had a 
I mean, I knew we had a Bronx River because it's, you know, there's a parkway named after it. You know, thank you, Robert Moses. Um, and then there was, I saw it on a subway map, but that was it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and had I not had a crazy dog that pulled me into what I just knew was just another dump. Right. Like on, you know, nearby. And I realized that it actually dead ended at this beautiful, expansive river that I'd never seen before in my life, even though I'd been there at that point for 30 years. So you're like a mile away from this. Not even. Yeah. Like okay, six not blocks even. Away. But, yeah. but it's, there's a dump there. So cut me off. You couldn't see it. It was off. just like piles of garbage over my head, like yeah, okay. as you could see from the street. So it was like, why would I ever go there? Never. Right. And, and yeah, but for some reason, Zena pulled me mm-hmm. into it and it was good because that's, to me, that was literally the start, you know, of my thinking about being a community developer. And, you know, it started out with that restoration project, mm-hmm. which is now a national award-winning park. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. It's interesting. There's so many urban waterfronts that had been hidden in so many places. There's mm-hmm. a place in Philly where I grew up uh. in the suburbs of Lower Marion, and they have reclaimed a spot right on the water that's been industrial, huh. and now it's a walkway and a bike path, and you get ice cream. We and- have this crazy history in America of like turning our backs on the river. First, like destroying them, right. and then turning our backs, and then being like, oh yeah, water, people like it. <laughs> right. and Yeah, and then I'm always very delighted when I hear stories like that. What was its effect on the neighborhood? Oh. Did it open up people's heart to that place? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, people didn't know what was there. And, you know, some of the peers in the nonprofit world were just this thought I was like the biggest dilettante Uh ever because there I was like thinking, you know, we got to give people something to dream on, as Jimi Hendrix would say. Yeah. And they were like yeah, but we got real problems. Like, you know, the schools suck. And I'm like, they do. I'm not saying they don't. But can we, we, it's not an either or. And, um, but they left me alone. They just didn't, they didn't bother me. They let me do my stuff. My favorite, and I don't think I even put this story in the book, but one of my favorite stories, the park had only been around for like a year or two at this point. And I'm literally, I was actually, I was coming out West at the time. And, and I was in a cab, I think coming out of SFO and I got, I saw an email that the park had been vandalized like really badly. And I was just like, I'm like working with clients. I couldn't stop anything literally. And I'm 3000 miles away. And, um, you know, by the time I got back four days later, the park was completely back to normal. Like there was a news story about it, um, about how badly it was vandalized. And there were these people from the neighborhood, none of which I knew. Actually, Uh they were all just like, how dare somebody come here and do this, you know, to our park. (laughs) And, and they were just, and there was enough of a groundswell, you know, support to make sure it got cleaned up appropriately, Mm -hmm. that it was cleaned up appropriately within four days. Wow. So let me ask a gross question. So in the Bronx, you open up the river, you put a park there. Here's the gross question. How did you keep it safe? We made sure it was maintained properly. Uh And so it always looked like it was a a well-used, wonderful place. Because right. maintenance, I mean, is a, a huge, huge indication of whether or not somebody cares uh-huh. and therefore reflective of safety. Maintenance can be used, you know, almost as, as, a, as a crime deterrent. Like, mm-hmm. and Because the more people want to use a clean park, right. like they won't use a park that's Disturbed. really gross. Uh-huh. Right. And that means it becomes a magnet for everything else that's, that's bad that's associated with it. Uh-huh. So, you know, that not to say that there's nothing bad happens down there, but for the most part, it doesn't, you know, because it's maintained, you know, as this vibrant space that people um, actively use for good uses. And that is the tenor of what goes on down there. And go back to the neighborhood that we talked about before where you were dodging bullets, mm-hmm. but felt safe. Yeah. Right. So how do those bullets not find their way to that park at night, especially? Maybe they do. I have nobody's there. I don't know. I mean, as far as I I mean, I've actually seen crime stats. It's like it's just not that big a deal. I don't know. I mean, the violent crime, you know, when when, all I can say is that when people talk about the reasons why they want to leave our communities, it's not because of crime. It's mm-hmm. usually because there's just nothing to do. Right. There's and not enough coffee shops. Not, yeah. Parks no. on the water. Well, now there's parks in which they love. But, you know, if they're not, if they're not things aren't programmed mm-hmm. all the time. And if they're, or just like there's a place for people to develop their own programming within a community, people will find other communities that have it. Yeah. I also wonder about clean, bright spaces that are well-maintained mm-hmm. versus those that aren't. Right. And since you have a percentage in that neighborhood that is devolved Mm -hmm. 
that percentage stays in the other kind of places and don't want to come to the bright, shiny, well-maintained places also ruin it for the others. No, I don't know if they ruin it for the others, but, you know, the other ones are there for them. You know, and that's the, the really interesting thing. If you don't create options for people to see, they right. will never know, mm-hmm. ever. And so that's why it's important for us to create those different options in, in neighborhoods and, you know, help people see that there are different ways of, of being. Mm-hmm. So I still want to ask about Spofford, but before that, talk about the MacArthur Genius Award. You're our second MacArthur Genius that I've talked to in two months. So Roseanne Haggerty, <laughs> who you might know oh, from Oh, I York. do know Roseanne, of and course. What an amazing conversation. But anyhow, talk about, how, did that come from the Waterfront Park, if there was an inspiration for that? And then how did that change your pathway once mm. you had that? I mean, I think it came from thing. like my entire body of work. I mean, I've been doing, I think the name Urban Revitalization Strategist, actually, the MacArthur Foundation named me that because, you know, our work, you know, spanned whether it was green workforce, you know, development, um, you know, park advocacy, you know, local economic development in areas that nobody expected the kind that we were doing, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So there's an umbrella term. Okay, cool. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And after you had that award, did that open different kinds of doors and different kinds of opportunities to make a difference in another way? It closed a bunch of doors. Wow. So talk Um, about what closed versus open. I'm surprised by that. mm, Well, I mean, mostly because philanthropy, you know, is, is, I mean, if you just look statistically um, at how they fund women and in particular women of color um the funds just do not go to us and the more my star rose Mm -hmm. the less funding i got and i would literally hear things from folks like oh you know you're doing good we need to support somebody else and i was just like i know some of these organizations you're supporting you do shoot a dead horse after a while like i'm sorry but um they were just, to them, you know, like they love the underdog story. And mm-hmm. I was not an underdog. Like I wanted to win for my communities. I still do. Like right. I'm not trying to do a feel-good story about anything. I'm like, we are struggling. We have talent. There's opportunities for us to grow and really do well. But mm-hmm. that's, that's what we want to try to work on. I'm not trying to do anything else. So have you played the game elsewhere? Sure. Talk about success, what's worked, and project that you're proud of. Yeah, so we took the same exact model that we wanted to do in my neighborhood, and we're work, we're in pre-development now for a project, a similar project in, uh, in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. Indiana. So I'm excited about that, and that'll include about 150 units of mixed-income housing, including about 50% should be home ownership. And actually, one of the companies that I'd hope to attract to New York, and New York City didn't seem interested in, in working to bring them here as a revolution foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they do prepared school lunches and they were excited about going to Indianapolis and they're going to like build a 200,000 square foot facility, 200 jobs. In addition to that project, we'll have about, you know, a, a, another local food hub for restaurateurs and small lot food manufacturers. So it's actually helping, helping create more local opportunities. Uh-huh. And talk about the structure of home ownership in these properties. Mm-hmm. And often when home ownership is done, there is some subsidy and there's mm-hmm. strings attached to how those subsidies work for home ownership. Yeah, depending on which on what kind. I mean, there's there's like limited equity co-ops. I mean, there's there's like some do have covenants so that you can't so in their design, you know, specifically so that people can create have some kind of like generational wealth but they can't sell it for much more. Like mm-hmm. we can and I think it's designed for low-income people so mm-hmm. that they can actually participate in an ownership, you know, have an ownership stake in equity in a, in a, in a property, but they buy it for a set price, and then the deal is is that the permanent affordability section mm-hmm. goes so that when they decide to move out, they can sell it. They'll definitely get their money back, you know, plus some extra. But it's not going to be like you can't just sell it for you know whatever the market is, because the whole point is that it goes to the same people, to the same type of people, in terms of affordability. Does this create a sense of ownership that helps communities, or does it create a sense of rentership? that looks like ownership. 
No, I think, I mean, if you still, if you have a home, you're putting equity in it, that's what you're paying down, and that's your equity, Mm -hmm. then you could borrow against it. You can do all sorts of stuff with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, why we've got such a crazy wealth gap. Right. right. It's because nobody we don't own anything. <laughs> so I'm like, right. even if it's like ownership with caveats, because not everybody's going to be an owner. And, you know, I know some people won't ever make the kind of money where they're going to be able to a, a buy the kind of home that a lot of people might want. And, you know, that's OK. That's just why I think we need more models that allow ownership. At a different level. Yeah. It, it's interesting. My a couple comments on this one. My wife grew up in a limited equity co-op mm-hmm. and her in Brooklyn and her parents called it the rent. They because never, that's probably what they were used to. Yeah. They, yeah. And they weren't used to it was the first place they lived. These mm-hmm. were immigrants and they had nothing. My wife grew up in a one bedroom apartment with her parents. So mm-hmm. this is. No, I hear that a lot. And but they never felt that more than huh. rent. They never felt that sense of ownership. Yeah, I and believe it. When I started my career, I was in the co-op housing movement. It was mm. a movement, not a thing. Limited equity co-ops are really cool, but I don't, long-term, they don't necessarily create that sense of ownership. Then I would actually say that part of it's the branding of it. Mm-hmm. We don't place an emphasis on financial literacy mm-hmm. in many of the low-status communities. We just yeah. don't. And it's really hard, I think, to break the habits that we have unless there's like you know a sustained effort you know, to educate people about what that means. And Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, there's not a whole lot of support to do that. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, One of the books that's resonated the most with me, and I want to have him on the podcast, is Richard Rothstein's Mm -hmm. Wrote the Color of Law. He's amazing. And amazing, Mm -hmm. eye-opening, jaw-dropping, sad-as-shit book, excuse me. (laughs) Right, because at the time that the government programs were being created that created the suburbs it created a whole generation of wealth for white people, specifically not for black people. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, listen, I think, you know, capitalism is such an interesting thing because, you know, it, the, the, the principles of it created things like slavery, but it also created like the, the development of things like Black Wall Streets. Wealth capitalism is just like, you know, right. what's the difference? But it's, it really depends the outcomes absolutely depend on like how is it being applied but part of me is just like how about we since what's here how about we just figure out ways to create some value for the people have that have not been included you know in the benefits of it so i want to think of two things before we end mm-hmm. one is i want to talk about home ownership in these communities and how that can stabilize communities mm-hmm. how people won't take the brass ring of hey let me buy you out mm-hmm and so what maintains people in their homes in these neighborhoods so that ownership can work and be stable? You know, I'd like to posit that I don't think gentrification, you know, the typical kind, you know, where properties are acquired, you know, long-standing owners in the community, you start to see gentrification when you start to see things like coffee shops and doggy daycares and places where you haven't. It starts to happen when people don't see value in their own community because uh-huh. that's when they sell early and cheap. Uh-huh. And so the opposite of that is making sure that people see value in their communities because then it would be really it would be very easy for them to see that someone else sees value <laughs> and that they see the value that someone else is seeing and being like, well, I understand that. <laughs> so no, I'm going to hold on to it for myself. But I think part of it, a huge piece of it is helping people in our own communities see the value there. Uh-huh. And that a lot of that has to do in from where we're standing with creating, you know, the kind of sense of value in the community through lifestyle infrastructure uh-huh. that makes people go, yeah, this is my neighborhood and I'm proud of being here. Like there's cool places to be. There are cool people here. And so why would I sell my community? Why would I sell my neighborhood? Why would I sell my house? If, if I feel that this is something that's going to accrue in value that has value for me right now. And then by association, for, the, for my family going forward. Okay, let me ask you a question. As the neighborhood densifies, that person should sell their house and then get the top floor condo for free that's being built there, have the equity in the condo. Now it's a dense neighborhood, 
and that that's that's okay and that's cool, but oh, they're not I, losing their equity. And you should be telling that you should be making. No, what that I happen. tell them is, you become the developer and you build that yourself. Even better. That's what I tell them. I do. I never would ever sell Delphi Pool in communities. Most as communities to sell. I am absolutely don't, sell. Don't leave. Because yeah. there's nowhere to go. Don't sell. Don't sell. And, you know, and use and build the value in your own property. So is that happening? Sometimes it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And not, not as quickly as much as I'd like, because, you know, the speed at which predatory speculators go after folks that don't, you know, understand the value of their home is, is incredible. One thing that has been happening, it makes me super proud, is that, i give you a perfect example. So I met a woman actually before my book came out. And uh, told her about my book, got a copy, mm-hmm. and she decided um, she had actually just sold her home, lives in a low-status community, mm-hmm. had sold her home to a group of investors. That's a code for prime, you know, yeah. uh, predatory speculators, you know, holding companies that buy houses for, for very quickly. And and so she was in that you know that three-day waiting period before you can before you you could either cancel the sale or or keep it, and. So she had just decided to sell the. She had already sold the house, went into contract, the whole shebang, and then saw my book sitting around and decided to read it, mm-hmm. and read it in one sitting. And then the next call was she picked up the phone, called her broker, and said, "Cancel the sale. Uh-huh. I'm not selling my child's inheritance." Wow. And I was like, "Okay, all right." And I'm getting those kind of stories. Yeah. You know. Often. I want to take exception with predatory speculators. That's a that's a bad bad word. Yes, a less it is. Best bad word is developer, and I'm trying to reclaim. The it's word a developer. less bad. No, I I have no problems with developer. I think developers are great. Because because those people should join venture with those developers on the redevelopment of their home. But they, they won't. Should. I've tried. Okay, <laughs> so they'll call me up because yeah. I own a few properties in my neighborhood, and they'll just say, Hey, you know, like, you know, I'm working with a group of investors, and you know, there's your neighborhood's really hot right now, and you know, we'd love to acquire your property. And I was like, You know what? That's great. Uh-huh. How about since I've got the asset, I join your group of investors and we can, you know, and I've got other people who'd be right. interested in doing that. And they're just like, there's silence at uh-huh. the other end of the phone and they're not interested in working with people in our communities. They're just not. Okay. We're going to work on that because this podcast is going to help that. So if there's a lesson from everything we've talked about that could happen, not that we'd love to happen, it's just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. we're going to be pissed off. But what could happen somewhere in the middle that helps this to occur more often what we just discussed? I mean, just people in low status communities holding on to their the properties and thinking that the value that could accrue could actually become part of their generational wealth for their families. You know, to consider people like the talented ones in our communities really giving our communities a second look and deciding that they want to stay and invest emotionally and socially and of course mm-hmm. financially you know and that there and I do think that it would be super cool if we had something like a real estate public defender the same way that there's a public defender if you're accused of committing a crime you have someone a legal you have legal counsel to help you right. go through that process people every day you know, are literally shedding any hope of future generational wealth right. potential because nobody, whether the various departments of finance and in, in different municipalities, watch they watch those deals go across the table in a in a heartbeat and nobody stops to look, you know, at the family and what who's just sold their house often for pennies on a dollar. Right. Two things I want to say. So one is my daughter in DC runs a tenant purchase program, mm-hmm. but it's all for rental, I think. And it's not a way for existing homeowners to get their piece of the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking, I'm in a house, it's run down, stuff's building up around me. What am I going to do? I don't have money to make the house better. I'm sure you do. If you've got equity in your house, if everything's building up around you, you've got plenty of it. can't pay off the loan for that equity. So how do I capture that value into the house that I have in a neighborhood that's redeveloping and let me be part, again, I'm back to that. I want to be part of that redevelopment in a way that's going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And that needs a translator. Right. They all need translators. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not just legal counsel right. to stop it. It's right. a translator to make what should happen in right. the right way happen and for could those happen. people. That's right. right. And it's true. And that that should be a part of it. Because again, if people, you know, I, I can't even get to the point where they know that there's value in their, yep. in their, in their land by just holding right. on to it. 
you think they're going to know that there might be ways to finance it in a different way that they could pull some equity out? No, they're not going to know that either. So you're right. And there are two very different things. So both of those, I think, are, are like part and parcel, sure. you know, ways to sort of help people, you know, get across to another part of what could be the beginning of their, their future. Totally true. It's mm-hmm. someone to trust. It's, it's a business person mm-hmm. to trust. Yeah. It's beyond financial literacy. That's yes. a hard one because you just... I mean, look, and there's been like, you know, literally hundreds of years of people, you know, in low status communities not being given that kind of opportunities. And even when true. we try, you know, I mean, there's still like, you know, black people's homes are being appraised at less, you know, than white people's. It's I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. And so this stuff should be criminal, but it's not. Yeah. So last question on leading voices is always if you have advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. So you have advice for a young black person in a low status community who says, how am I get in the real estate world? How do you help them think about that? Yeah. And it's, I, <laughs> I said the horrible thing is that, yeah, because my advice would be different for a black person yeah. than it would be for anybody else. You know, but actually the, the big piece would be learn as much about the industry as you can. Like I, like if, if you're going to school, get a degree in it because that's where I was utterly deficient. Like I had mm-hmm. no idea any of the things I'm doing. Like I just didn't understand it because that like, it wasn't my world. And um, so I think that will absolutely help. Yeah. Get an MBA, you know, and then at least some kind of concentration in real estate and finance in particular so that you understand where you're playing. And then I think the, you know, but it would be the same because the, the networking is really going to be what's happening and then buy whatever property you can. I don't care where it is. Just if you have to eat oatmeal for a year, do it and don't sell your family's house. Totally true. Majora, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and this conversation. My pleasure. And good luck with the book. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.